Well, I think what's today, May 28th? I think it was May 29th, 1953, that Sir Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa Tanzing became the first climbers to ever reach the summit of Mount Everest. Decades before that, many people thought it was impossible. Many doubted if a human could ever really make it to the top of Mount Everest, given the, the freezing conditions and the lack of oxygen. So few people ever attempted it. In fact, there were just eight attempts to get to the top of Mount Everest before Hillary made it to the top. But after Hillary pulled it off, he proved that although it was still extremely difficult, it could be done. And this realization emboldened countless others, such that now hundreds of people attempt to reach the top of Mount Everest every single year. Just knowing now that it, it can be done has been enough to embolden other people to, to give it a try, to attempt it. And so it goes with all difficult tasks. When something has never been done before, when it seems impossible, it discourages others from even attempting it. But once someone finally gets it done, proves that it's at least possible, well, others will follow. They'll find the courage to, to follow, and, and they can always point to their example as, as proof and motivation. It really highlights the value of examples. I think most people are just prone to fear. But there's nothing like a good example, a trailblazer who leads the way and shows that something can be done, and others will follow. Leaders are those who get out in front and who show through their own personal example that something can be done and, and should be done. And then they turn around and tell others to, to follow me, to do as I do. And I'm sure you can see the relevance here to the Christian life, living the Christian life. It, it's not an impossible task, but I'm sure to, to some it, it can feel that way. Denying self to follow Jesus, suffering for the sake of the gospel, being even imprisoned for preaching Christ, not giving it a temptation your entire life, putting the interests of others ahead of yourself. All these things we are called to do can seem impossible. I mean, can anyone really do that? Can anyone really live this Christian life, especially in such a dark and hostile world now? Is it even really possible to, to follow your Christ, to follow Christ rather, for your entire life and, and finish? Well, this is where the value of good examples come in. So there is a, a long line of, of godly men and women who have proven that, that, yes, you can. Although it still may be extremely difficult for some, you can truly follow Christ and live out your faith in the dark and, and hostile world. And God himself has actually given us several examples in Scripture along those lines to, to instruct us and to embolden us to do the same, to follow Christ. It's like you can picture Jesus standing at the top of the mountain, He's both our goal and our prize, our standard for living. And we're down at the bottom looking up, and he calls us to, to follow him. And we're, we're wondering, can, can anyone really make it up there? Can anyone get to the top of, of this mountain? But at the same time, we see all along the mountain there are, there are footprints in the snow, steps of those who have gone before, and they've, they've made it up. So at the very least, you can see, well, it, it can be done. Granted, God must supply the spiritual energy we need, but it, it can be done. Following Christ, your life, and all that he calls you to do, it, it can be done. And if you were to follow in the footsteps of those who've gone before you, well, then you too would make it up this mountain. And this is the power and the value of good and godly examples.
You can open your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and if, if you need a pew Bible, it's page 155 in the New Testament of Philippians chapter 2. I'm getting pretty close to the halfway point of this short epistle of Philippians. But before chapter 2 concludes, Paul reminds that the Philippians uh, gives them some personal updates, some travel plans. Just by way of reminder, Paul had been imprisoned in Rome. And during that time, many of the churches that he had planted became very concerned for him and his well-being, his gospel ministry, and the Philippian church included. They wanted to make sure Paul was okay. They wanted to minister to his needs. So they sent one of their own, one of their leaders named Epaphroditus. They sent him off to Rome. Just go, go see how Paul is doing. Check up on him. Minister to his needs. He was going to stay there and minister to Paul. And they also sent with him a, a good chunk of change. Just go and take care of whatever Paul needs. They, they were blessing and serving Paul. You have to remember, though, all of this was before the age of communication. So news traveled slowly. It's not like Paul could text the Philippian church from jail telling them how he was doing. If you wanted to give someone a message and they live far away, you better start walking. There's no postal service. So when the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to Rome, they understood it would be several months before they heard anything back. And at the same time, Epaphroditus, his mission was to stay in Rome and just be like Paul's servant, just to serve him, to help him. So the church, they were not expecting Epaphroditus to come back anytime soon. They thought that Paul would send someone else, another messenger, to come back and and let them know how Paul was doing while Epaphroditus stayed in Rome. That's what was supposed to happen. That's not what happened. And that's a a large part of why Paul is writing Philippians. You can almost picture one day. Maybe it was during a church gathering, the Philippian church. Epaphroditus walks through the door. You can imagine that their shock, their confusion in seeing him back so soon. He wasn't supposed to be back this soon. It's like you have a friend. He goes off to Africa to join the Peace Corps for six months. Then you see him back after one month, and you're going to assume the worst. Like, well, what happened? Either they kicked you out or you couldn't cut it. And so seeing Epaphroditus, surely they're, they're going to assume the worst. Like, well, what's going on? You can, it's not hard to imagine the questions they would have had. Like, was Paul killed in prison? Or, or did, Paul, did, he, did he reject you? Did, did you give up on Paul? What happened to all the money we, we sent with you for Paul's needs? All these questions you can imagine running through their minds. Now, in reality, Paul was alive, and Epaphroditus had not failed Paul at all. Rather, Paul, on purpose, was sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippian church early. But Paul knew that this was going to cause some confusion, and this is actually one of the main reasons he wrote this little letter, which is now a book of the Bible, called Philippians. He wrote it to to, to send with Epaphroditus, explaining to the church, here's why I'm sending this guy back so soon. Among other things, of course. But this whole background, if you remember all this, it really sets up the passage we have today at the end of chapter 2. Paul, he's got a lot more to say in Philippians. Of course, he gives a a lengthy personal update. And he he addresses all the division and the strife going on within the Philippian church. But for the moment, at the end of chapter 2, he gets back to some background and spends some time explaining Epaphroditus' return. Now, that being said... We're not going to talk too much about this guy, Epaphroditus, this morning. Instead, we'll be talking mostly about another guy named Timothy. 
And that's because in this passage, before Paul explains to the church why he's sending back Epaphroditus, he first explains why he's not sending Timothy. Timothy was supposed to go first. It it seems the Philippian church expected, okay, we're going to send you Epaphroditus. Paul, you'll send us back Timothy. Let us know how things are going. But, of course, that's not what happened. Paul needed Timothy to stick around for the time being. And so beginning in verses 19 through 24, our passage for this morning, Paul explains first why he's not sending Timothy back to the church. You know, let's go ahead and just read the passage. It'll make more sense as we read it and go along. Philippians chapter 2, picking up verses 19 through 24. Paul says, verse 19, But I hope in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Now, before we get into this passage, I feel the need, like last time, to, to again point out its relevance. Like last week, it's a very historically situated text, and, and you could ask, okay, what, what does Paul's explanation for not sending Timothy to the Philippian church 2,000 years ago, what does all that have to do with us today? And the answer is on the surface, not a lot, but there, there's more going on in this passage. It's not just a, a simple historical explanation, but there's also an example here to be found. You know, Paul always wrote with the edification of the churches in mind. And even here, it seems like this is more than just a basic explanation of of travel plans. Rather, Paul, he's he's spending his time really commending Timothy to the Philippian church, both as their leader and as their example. And the same is true for Epaphroditus in the next passage. And this, I believe, is intentional, which really transforms this passage from just a meager explanation of travel plans to an example, an example that they were to follow and we are to follow as well. So see what's going on here. In Philippians, what's what's Paul's main pastoral thrust? Well, he's, he's overall just exhorting them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, which includes putting aside all of their strife and division and rather serving one another humbly, selflessly, sacrificially, Now, all those can seem like difficult tasks, even impossible tasks. But you may not have noticed this, but but all throughout Philippians, Paul, he's already been including examples to show them that this can be done. Living out the gospel like this, it can be done and it must be done. He actually started with himself back in chapter one. He pointed to his own example how he was standing firm in the midst of opposition, both within and without the church. Then Paul, of course, next pointed to the ultimate example of this humble, selfless, sacrificial serving of one another in Christ. Right? Isn't Christ the ultimate example? And that was a huge part of what the beginning of chapter 2 was all about. Christ's example. 
He says in, in chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. But after that, Paul then hinted at the negative example of Israel who failed to heed these instructions and were judged. And then next comes two more examples with two more men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And here in chapter 2 at the end, Paul, he's not just giving an update on the travel plans of these guys. He's doing more. He's putting them on display, really, as examples to be followed. For both of these men, in different ways, they, they perfectly exemplify everything Paul is trying to teach the Philippians. These guys are like the perfect living examples for the Philippian church just to follow. Just follow them, and you'll sort out your problems. These guys, they're a standard for you, really. They're both living in a manner worthy of the gospel. They both showcase this humble, selfless, sacrificial spirit. Timothy gives a perfect example of what it looks like to live for Christ. Epaphroditus gives a perfect example of what it looks like to suffer for Christ, which we'll see next week. But both of these men serve as standards to follow and to emulate. So now back to our passage. You know, on your own, you read through this, you might be tempted just to skim through it. You read right over it. You pay no attention. It's just like, it's just an irrelevant passage on travel details. But it's not. There's more. And these two men, they really join the ranks of, of Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul, as timeless examples of living the Christian life. These men still show us that following Christ, living out the gospel, and humbly serving others, that it can be done, and that it must be done. And here's how to do it. Follow them as they follow Christ. And we would do well to, to continue in their footsteps as they tread up this mountain to Christ. They show us the way. So with, with this in mind, we're now ready to, to begin, take a, a deeper look at this passage. And today, we're first going to behold the example of Timothy who really shows us what it looks like to follow Christ. We'll begin with this, number one, Timothy's commission. Timothy's commission. Just starting things off, in verse 19, we learn of Paul's plans for Timothy. As we already said, he won't be sending Timothy back right away. But that doesn't mean he's never going to send him. In a short while, he still hopes to send Timothy to the Philippian church as originally planned. So verse 19 begins. He says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Epaphroditus, he's going to go first. He will take this letter of Philippians. But not long after that, Paul will follow through and he'll, he'll send Timothy as well. If the Lord wills. Notice, Paul says, he hopes in the Lord to send Timothy shortly. Like, like Rod was saying earlier, we know that man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And so Paul was like, hey, Lord willing, I'll send Timothy to you. Now, why though? Why was he still going to send Timothy? Verse 19. But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Most of the time, Paul sends his delegates to a church for their sake. 
In other words, Paul's associates, they were sent to churches. They're like the cleanup crew, like, go go fix this mess at the church in Corinth. Or go minister to the special need there. They've got a special need. Go, go take care of it. It was mostly for the church's sake. But this time, Paul wants to send Timothy for his own sake. Paul wants Timothy to visit the Philippian church to see how they're doing and then to report back to him to encourage him. When Paul sent Epaphroditus, that's it. Epaphroditus, he's not coming back to to Paul. But Timothy would have. Paul trusts that the Philippians would have received this letter well and rightly responded to all those admonitions to to put aside their differences, to, to come together, to stand united in the Lord. And Paul was hoping that as he sends Timothy, Timothy will come back and report to him that, yep, they're doing it, that they, they heeded your admonition, that they're, they're putting aside their strife, and they're following Christ together. And this, of course, would, would, would greatly encourage Paul, showing that his labor over the Philippians wasn't in vain, and as they bear fruit, he'd just be encouraged. He just wanted an encouraging report, knowing that this church, which he loved, that they were going strong. And so along these lines, he plans to eventually send Timothy. Jumping down to verse 23, Paul goes on to say, Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Paul is very optimistic about his case. You might remember that very soon he's going to stand trial before Caesar himself for preaching Christ. And if things go south, he could be executed. But this time around, he's very confident that he will be, he will prevail. He'll be released. But it's, it's a very crucial time, though. And Paul, he can't quite afford to, to lose Timothy at a time like this. Timothy is like his right-hand man. He can't lose such a valuable ally at such a critical time. So as, as things go well, though, as Paul hopes to prevail then he'll finally get around to sending Timothy to the Philippians. But for now, he trusts in the Lord that things will go well and that even he will be able to visit them sometime soon. All right, so this is, this is Timothy's commission. Not right away, but eventually the Philippians can expect a visit from Timothy and hopefully they will give him a good report. But Paul's not done here. He also uses his some time here, actually more of his time, to commend Timothy to the Philippian church as an example so that when he shows up, they will accept him and they will follow him. They, they will strive to Christlikeness after him. And so next we find a highlight of Timothy's character, Timothy's commission. Secondly, now Timothy's character. And this is where we really get into Timothy's example. He was a model Christian citizen. Christ calls all of his disciples to to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him, right? Timothy shows us what that looks like better than most. So Paul goes on to highlight young Timothy, not so that they would worship him, but that they would would follow his lead and emulate his example. Specifically, Paul points out three aspects of Timothy's character that you would still do well to follow. Three aspects of Timothy's character that are still worth following. Number one, he had a shepherd's spirit. He had a shepherd's spirit. Look back at verse 20. After introducing Timothy, he says, For I have no one else 
of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. In a pastoral sense, Paul was alone in Rome. There were no like-minded shepherds who shared his concerns. None except Timothy. Paul describes Timothy here as being a kindred spirit in the NASB. It's actually an old and rare word in the Greek that literally means one-souled. They were one-souled. And like Jesus taught, true disciples will become like their master. Timothy was a true disciple. And in many ways, he came to take on the character of his father in the faith, Paul. He taught like Paul. He thought like Paul. He knew the scriptures like Paul. He shared the values of Paul. They were like-minded. And when it comes to ministry, as a side note, never underestimate the value of being like-minded. And furthermore, during their 10 years of ministry together, their, their souls had been knit together. Imagine they shared a great friendship like Jonathan and David. More importantly, though, they shared a shepherd's spirit. They both truly cared for the flock of God. Paul describes Timothy as being genuinely concerned for your welfare. Notice, Timothy, he wasn't just concerned for the Philippian church. He was genuinely concerned. He had a strong feeling, a burden for the church. Timothy really cared about them. He cared what happened to them. He cared about their spiritual welfare. And this means that, just like Paul, Timothy was truly concerned to see their internal strife, strife and division get resolved. He had a burden for their sanctification. You may recall that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, he relates all of his suffering for Christ. Remember, he's been beaten and, and robbed and shipwrecked. All, the, all these bad things have happened to him in following Christ. But at the very end, do you remember what he says? He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 28, he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. You see, Paul was burdened for the spiritual state of the church. Like a good shepherd, he was concerned for the sheep. He desperately wanted to fend off the wolves and lead them to green pastures. When one sheep strayed, he was intensely concerned. And when other sheep see a fellow sheep stray, they typically don't care. They're not concerned. It's of no interest to them. They're not burdened. But a true shepherd feels this burden, this burden for God's sheep just burns within him. He can't help it. He has to, he's compelled to, to go after them and to bring back that which is lost, even at a personal cost. And Timothy Timothy was the same way. He shared that burden with Paul for the flock of God. He had a shepherding spirit. And, and a perfect example of this, I, I can tell you myself as an under-shepherd of Christ Jesus, I would take one Timothy, one faithful and reliable, like-minded servant, over a hundred lukewarm Christian servants any day. Because I would know that he would share my burden for the church and for the lost. So for one, the Philippians, they could trust Timothy when he arrived, knowing that this guy, he really cares for us. He has our best interests in mind. We can follow him. We can trust him. 
But at the same time, though, that, that's not all because they should also aspire to be like him, to, to really follow him. And, and you know what? So should we because isn't this really what Christ calls all of us to do, to be genuinely concerned for others? You think that's only for pastors? That that's what God wants of all his people, to be genuinely concerned for others. And if only all of God's people had this shepherding spirit, the church would be way better off, right? And I've sadly heard the same story from so many different people. They relate how they used to attend a previous church, and they're there for many years, but nobody knew them. That They still felt like a stranger in their own church for quite some time. When they eventually decided to leave that church, nobody noticed. Like no, nobody followed up with them. There was no call from the pastor just to see how they were doing. Fellow, fellow members, nobody checked in on them. See, oh, I haven't seen you in a couple months. Where have you been? Just, just checking in. In some cases, the other churches didn't even know they had left. How does that happen? Well, it happens when shepherds and churches lose that concern for others. Church in America has become this event where you show up for 60 to 90 minutes, you have your, your weekly religious experience, and then on your way, back to life, back to doing all the things you want to do. And just as our culture has become consumer-driven, so the church in America has largely become consumer-driven. It's about you and your experience, getting your needs met. The, the problem with that, though, is it, that the, the emphasis on concern for others is lost. Now I'm talking real, genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of others. Looking like entering into the lives of one another, bearing their burdens, praying for them, even knowing how to pray for them, holding them accountable, encouraging them. But this can't happen if you never talk to one another, if you leave immediately after the service and you're otherwise uninvolved, we see you for, you know, 90 minutes and that's it, you're gone, poof. But this can never happen. There'll never be this genuine concern for one another. Many churches are like this and we have to refrain from pointing the finger because even small churches like ourselves can fall into the same trap. Sure, at a small church, it's harder to hide. So if you're gone for a couple months, you know, people will notice. But that doesn't necessarily mean they will care. That doesn't necessarily mean they'll be concerned. So just ask yourself, do you care? Do you really care about all the other people in this room? What if you heard that someone else was, was living in sin? Would you be burdened to pray for them, to hold them accountable? What if you found out that someone, you know, they got their feelings hurt unnecessarily, that they're wandering from the faith, that they're leaving the church, would you be burdened to, to go after them, to, to seek the, the straying sheep? Or just you don't really even think about it. You don't, you don't care. Let yourself be convicted here and ask the Lord to give you a shepherding spirit. You don't have to be a pastor to do that. In Numbers chapter 11, it says the Holy Spirit came to rest on two men other than Moses, and they started prophesying. So Joshua told Moses to restrain them. You know what Moses said back? Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? He said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. 
And likewise, we can say today, we're that all the Lord's people shepherds. That they share this genuine concern for one another. Yeah, it may be the duty of elders and pastors to have this concern for the flock, but this standard applies to all. Follow the example of men like Timothy and and ask the Lord to burden your heart for one another. Isn't this what Paul wanted of the Philippians, to come together? Nothing unites people in a marriage, in a church, together like genuine interest. That leads to serving one another. And you just see how, how the church grows in unity and love through this. Follow Timothy, who had a shepherd's spirit. Secondly, he had a servant's heart. Second aspect of his character, Paul highlights. He had a servant's heart. Look back now at verse 21. After saying in verse 20, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He says, verse 21, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. By way of contrast, Timothy is seen to share Paul's concerns for the interests of others and the interests of of Christ. Timothy wanted whatever Jesus wanted. Timothy valued what Jesus valued. He was Christ's disciple, and he concerned himself with his master's wishes. It's like Paul said over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He said, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Timothy was not entangled in the passing pleasures of the world. He was an active and a good soldier of Christ Jesus. But this was not true of all those ministering in Rome at the time. Here Paul is lamenting the fact that other Christian leaders in Rome, that they're not concerned for others, and they're not concerned for Christ. They're just concerned for themselves. They're seeking after their own interests. Who are these people? Don't forget what we learned back in in chapter 1. Or if you recall, while Paul was in prison in Rome, some of the other Christian leaders in Rome, they saw this as their opportunity to shine, to rise, to steal away the spotlight from Paul, that they could, you know, kick him while he's down and that they would booster their own image. Well, I mean, Paul, he's in prison. God must have rejected him. Follow us. And so Paul writes about these people in Philippians 1, verses 15 through 17, if you, you want to look back there. He says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Some also from goodwill, the latter doing it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But then he says, the former, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So there's a group of Christians who they, they were not concerned with making Christ's name known in Rome. They're just concerned with making their own name known, making a name for themselves. The thing is, it's interesting, they were preaching the true gospel. These people weren't actually heretics or false teachers. It's just that they were doing it all for themselves. They turned preaching the gospel into a means of personal gain. Most likely they were garnering power, prestige, influence, maybe even money. It's like they were the first televangelists. 
And back then, there was no better place to do that than Rome. It's been said that Christianity began as a personal relationship with Christ Jesus. When it went to Athens, it became a philosophy. When it went to Rome, it became an organization. When it went to Europe, it became a culture. And when it went to America, it became a business. And I think it's very much true. Now, Paul, he's not saying that Timothy is the last good man left on the planet. It's just that at the time he's writing, all the other faithful people had been sent out. There were other faithful men with Paul in Rome. Over in Colossians, which Paul writes before Philippians, but in prison, the same time in prison, he mentions there were other faithful men who were with him. In Colossians 4, Paul mentions Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justus, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. But these guys had all by now been sent out, such that Paul was left just with Timothy. I should point out, though, there is a cautionary tale to be learned in in the last name I just mentioned there, Demas. The name might slightly ring a bell for you. We don't know a lot about him, but in Colossians 4 and Philemon 24, both of which were written in prison by Paul just before Philippians, he mentions Demas in a good way. He said, he's my fellow worker, co-laborer. Demas was was with Paul ministering. But a few years later, in Paul's final letter of 2 Timothy, things have changed. And he says this, 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The word means utterly abandoned. doesn't necessarily mean Demas became a false teacher or he was a false believer. It just seems that he put his own interests for his own safety and comfort ahead of those of Christ. When Paul and others needed him, he was nowhere to be found. Because in the end, Demas was just looking out for number one. He was looking out for his own interests, not those of Christ. In fact, it may have been during this time in Rome that Demas abandoned Paul. And in Philippians 2.21, he might be talking about Demas when he says, they all seek after their own interests. But at the very least, Paul was not talking about Timothy. Thankfully, Timothy remained faithful. He was still single-mindedly devoted to Christ and Christ's interests. When Paul went through the roster in his mind of of the ministers he could send to Philippians, he was drawn a blank. None of them actually cared. None of them were qualified. None of them would have gone because there's nothing in it for them. To, to go to minister to the Philippian church, they get, they get nothing out of that. But Timothy would go when the time was right because he was concerned for the interests of others and for the interests of Christ. And this really reveals Timothy's servant heart. He was willing to go to serve others even when it gained him nothing and even cost him dearly. And that's because he regarded himself as a slave. Christ's slave. Isn't that how Paul introduced he and Timothy in the very first verse of Philippians? Look back at Philippians 1.1. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. The word literally, as you know, slave. Slaves of Christ Jesus. Realize Paul and Timothy, they were just serving by example. Paul wasn't calling on the Philippians to do anything that he and Timothy weren't doing first. Remember how in in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he called on them to 
Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, Paul and Timothy, they, they were living that out first. Like Christ, who himself humbled himself and took the form of a slave, chapter 2, verse 7 says. They, they were serving out in front as examples. So they could say, hey, follow us as we follow Christ. So ask yourself now, do, do you serve like that? Are you serving? And what does it take for you to serve others? Do you secretly look for an incentive to serve? Maybe the church is going to have a cleaning day on Saturday, and, and you ask, well, you know, is lunch going to be included? You know, do I get a free lunch out of it? As if you'll only serve if, if there's something, just even small, in it for you. Or maybe there's, there's a shut-in, someone who's sick in the hospital or in their home, and they could just use an encouraging visit. And you think to yourself, well, yeah, I, I guess I have time, but what do I really get in visiting this person? I just I lose some time. What, what do I gain in return? The answer is, in a way, nothing, but that's not what serving others is about. Remember, the model of Paul, of Christ, of Timothy, is selfless sacrificial service. That's what Christ modeled for us, not selfish service, where you're serving others because of what's in it for you. Now, I trust you see that serving has nothing to do with what you get out of it, but it's all about giving. You give help to others, and thereby you give glory to God. God does actually reward such service with your own blessing and the reward of, of serving your master is a job well done. But like Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve. So will you concern yourself with your own interests or those of Christ? Whose interests win out in the end in your life? And look, we're all selfish creatures. We're all sinners, and, and the flesh wins that battle more than we like at times. But again, be convicted. We're called to follow Christ, and I mean serving like Christ, giving of ourselves, gaining nothing, just like he did, for his glory. Finally, we'll point out number three. Timothy had a son's devotion. A son's devotion. Verse 22, Paul says of him, But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Here, Timothy, or Paul rather, points out the devotion of Timothy, like a child serving his father. You may know Paul considered Timothy his child in the faith. In 1 Corinthians 4, he referred to Timothy as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In 1 Timothy 1, he called him my true child in the faith. In 2 Timothy, he called him my beloved son. And that's certainly true in a spiritual sense as Timothy came to salvation under Paul's preaching and, and Paul discipled him so much. And like a good son, Timothy was devoted. But notice, it doesn't say that Timothy was devoted to Paul, although he was. But what makes Timothy extra special is that he was devoted to what? To the furtherance of the gospel. Paul doesn't say here that he served me, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. 
Timothy was not just Paul's son in the faith, but also his faithful co-laborer. And so in 1 Corinthians 16, he, he says that Timothy is doing the Lord's work. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, he refers to Timothy as his brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Timothy was devoted to the gospel. He made his life about spreading the gospel and sharing the good news, good news of Christ with all who he came across. You know that word, gospel, it's not just a Christian buzzword we use. It reflects that the saving message of Christ Jesus, the good news of Christ Jesus. You know, Paul talks a lot about this gospel in Romans 10. The problem we all have is that we are unrighteous before God. We're sinners, all of us. We've transgressed his holiness. We've violated his ways. And that places us now under his just judgment. And we need, therefore, forgiveness and righteousness. We're not righteous. We need it. The other problem, though, is that most people think they can establish their own righteousness through their own deeds, their own effort, their own religion. They can, they can make up for their sins. But it doesn't work that way. As Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What that means is salvation, it's not about what you can do. There's nothing you can do. Rather, it's about what Christ has already done. There's only one work that can bring you forgiveness and righteousness, and it's not your own work or works. It is rather Christ's finished work on the cross, where he was in your place paying the debt for your sin, bearing the wrath of God that you deserved, and purchasing your forgiveness and your redemption through his blood. Only now in Christ can you find the forgiveness you need and the gift of righteousness that you need to be with God. And Christ, though, having finished that work, he now offers both to you. And this is the gospel, and this is the good news, that salvation has come. Redemption has been accomplished. And to be redeemed, to be forgiven, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do some great deed or, or work. You don't have to go to church or read your Bible. What you must do is simply believe. Romans 10, after this, 9 through 10, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, of course, this confession, this belief, it's not talking about raising your hand or signing a card or going down an altar call and, and filling out a, a, a card, repeating some magic words. It's not a special prayer. You're saying some magic words doesn't save you. But this, this belief involves the true conviction in your soul that everything Jesus said was true. Everything Jesus did was true. That he really is the Lord, and therefore you, you respond accordingly. This means you bow down before him. You trust him to save you. You give him your entire life because he's the Lord, and that's what he demands. The eternal life Jesus offers, it, it's both free and costly. It costs you nothing and everything at the same time. 
It comes to you by God's grace through your faith as a free gift. But the only people who find it are those who, who give up everything to follow him. So have you done this? Have you believed in Jesus to follow Jesus? And if not, I pray you do this today. Believe in this gospel and be saved. See your sins. Feel the, the guilt, the conviction of your sins. But then see the Savior and run to him and follow him. And then as you do so, what do you do when you receive a great gift? You, you tell other people about it. And so Paul continues in Romans 10, 14 through 15. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Hopefully now this describes you, a messenger of the gospel. As it described Paul and as it also described Timothy. Back to Timothy now. Timothy, this is him. He was a true minister of this gospel. Again, he was devoted to the furtherance of this gospel. He's telling the good news. Indeed, here in, in our verse, Paul even points out Timothy's proven worth in this regard. And that's a, that's a really invaluable character asset, right? A character trait, proven worth. That's what you want. It's just that you can't buy that. You can't buy proven worth. You can't fake proven worth. Rather, you must earn a reputation of godliness and faithfulness through many years of your example. This is especially important for all the leaders in the church. Over in 1 Timothy 3, Paul reminds Timothy that all the leaders, elders and deacons, they must have proven worth. They must not be new converts, but tested before they serve in those capacities. They've got to pass through the fire of temptation, trials, and suffering, proving that they are true disciples. And Timothy, he had done that. He'd been serving with Paul for about 10 years now, and he endured most of the same hardships as Paul. He sacrificed like Paul. He suffered like Paul. On at least four occasions, the Philippian church had seen Timothy in action. He'd ministered to countless other churches, and although he was still relatively young, he was proven. He was proven to be an invaluable asset to the ministry of the gospel. And you may not be a leader like a Paul or like a Timothy. You may not be an elder or, or even a deacon. But I hope you aspire to the same proven worth. A few excel, and they may be called a full-time ministry, but look, the call to, to make disciples, the call to follow Christ, to share the gospel, to serve others, again, do you think that's only for pastors and, and elders? That call is for all disciples. That means you, every one of you. You have that same call. To, to ministry, gospel ministry. You're all ministers, whether you know it or not. The question is, are you faithful? Are you proving yourself faithful over the years or kind of a, a spiritual flake? Are you enduring trials and temptations? Are, are you rising to the challenge, devoting yourself to the Lord and the things of the Lord? Again, we all fall short, but build a conviction to, to give more of your life over to the Lord. You know, I am going to serve him. 
I will follow Timothy, who followed Paul, who followed Christ, and give of myself to the Lord to others. And in this, you reflect Christ to the world. You don't have to be a pastor to do that. It just looks like living your life with Christ and the gospel always in the front of your mind. Such that when you encounter an unbeliever, you are burdened to share the gospel with them, with the good news of salvation. When you encounter a fellow believer, you're burdened to, to minister the gospel to them, to encourage them, to help them, to serve them. And so I pray now that you become the next example for the next generation. May you now, like Timothy, possess a shepherd's spirit, a servant's heart, and a son's devotion to the Lord. I pray you take all this and your life, you become the the next example, the next link in the chain, such that those around you, they can look to you and see that's how, that's how you live as a Christian in 21st century America with all of its unique challenges and, and trials. It's not easy, especially today. It's getting harder and harder. But let people look to you. This is how you, you follow Christ in this world. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, Paul says, he says, I exhort you, be imitators of me. And he also says, for this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in the church. So you see the, you see the chain. Paul says, hey, follow me. And here's Timothy. Follow Timothy. He follows me. I follow Christ. And you're now, you're now called to enter this chain. You follow all the men and women down the long line who've been following Timothy, who followed Paul, who followed Christ. And now it's your turn to, to jump in, to join in this chain. Follow in their footsteps up this mountain, aspiring to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then turn around and make sure you're leaving your trusty footsteps behind that others will follow you. You now be the next example of following Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, the word this morning, as we learn and behold the example of of young Timothy and his proven worth as a trusted minister of the gospel, a son, a friend, a brother to the Apostle Paul, and to us, a leader, an example, that he's still worth following. His footsteps have been placed in concrete now in the concrete pages of Scripture for all to see through all the ages, a perpetual living example, among others, of how to follow Christ in this world. And their world, it's not so different from ours, Lord. We still struggle with sin, that the The world around us still oppresses and opposes Christ and the things of the Lord. It can be hard. It can be a challenge to to be faithful, to fight off sin and temptation, to endure persecution and suffering. But these men and women in the Bible show us how. And I pray, Lord, we now can be the next generation of living examples of of just discipleship, following you, and in turn can, can tell others like Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitators of me. Inspire us, Lord, convict us, challenge us, and change us that we would be more like Christ and we would follow you and others would follow us all to Christ. We do this for his sake, for his glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.